Let's get our Bibles out here. John chapter 11. We're going to begin reading from verse 36 to verse 44. And ask if you would please stand with me as we read God's word. John chapter 11, verse 36. So the Jews said, see how he loved him? But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Then Jesus, deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone lay against it. Jesus said, Take away the stone. Martha, the sister of the dead man, said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor, for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, Did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? So they took away the stone, and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with the Lloyd vo a loud voice, Lazarus, come out! The man who had died came out, his hands and feet bound with linen strips and his face wrapped with a cloth. Jesus said to them, Unbind him and let him go. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I don't see Pastor Patrick here. And uh, he told me that he was going to be here unless the night was rough last night with the baby. So where is he? He's outside. He's outside. So he is here. I was just about to call us to prayer for the Vestergaard family, just because I'm experiencing what it's like to have a newborn and uh, they don't let you sleep. So we still need to pray for Nicole though. I'm sure she took the, the brunt of that one, but there he is. There he is. So glad you're here, Patrick. And uh, we are excited about uh, baby Judah. And uh, with that said, let's jump into our text. Um, today, we are covering part two of a two-part sermon series. Now, we're in a larger series. For those of you that are just joining us, it's called I Am. And the idea is to go through the book of John, specifically looking at, looking at those passages and the surrounding verses where Jesus makes an I Am statement about himself. So some of you, some of you know these statements, I am the bread of life, right? Uh, and, and so we have made our way through now. Now we're going to finish this I am statement today. And this is of course, when Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Okay. And then we have two more, just so you guys know in our series. So we're going to, we have two more and we'll be done probably by the end of the school year. So that's the, that's the plan uh, to keep working through John and to hit the last two I am statements after this. So that's our larger series, but we are actually in a, now a second part of what I began last week of this section. And I'm calling this sermon title, three conversations and a resurrection. Okay, so last week we saw two of the three conversations, 
and we didn't get to the resurrection. So today we're going to be covering the last conversation that Jesus has, and then we will be covering the resurrection. So let's pray one more time, and then let's jump in to our text. Lord Jesus, we, uh, we are reminded, I am reminded of something you showed me and reminded me of this morning. We're about to see you raise a man from the dead. That is an incredibly miraculous power that we cannot possibly even conceive of. Of course, Lord, all of your miracles we can't conceive of. But there are some miracles that seem to even outdo other miracles. And to bring a person back from the dead who has been, ra- who has been dead for four days is absolutely mind-boggling to us, Lord. And yet, what we hear from your word is that the same power that raises from the dead is at work in us. And specifically, you said in your word that the same power that raised you, Lord Jesus, from the dead is at work in us. If we are Christians this morning, we have an incredible power at work in us. Lord, may we know that power. May we trust that power. And may we know it even right now as we want our ears to be ready to hear what it is you have to tell us. So Lord, be with my words this morning. You know my weaknesses and failures. And yet, Lord, I pray you would overcome those so that your people would hear your word this morning. We love you. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Everybody okay? I heard I heard it aloud. There's something outside that. Oh my goodness, Holy Spirit! <laughs> wow, that's the ghost of uh, Echo Church. Just so you all know. Um, for all those that are watching, there's a door that's opening and shutting uh, off off to this off off of camera. So we'll try not to be too distracted as it slams shut uh, throughout the sermon. Here's the story. Here's where we're at so far. One of Jesus's followers, one of his beloved followers, a man named Lazarus became terminally ill. They knew even with their limited medical uh, understanding 2000 years ago, they just knew Lazarus was going to die. He had one of those illnesses, those sicknesses that we would today call a terminal illness. And so Martha, his sister, and Mary, his other sister, both who loved Jesus, sent word to Jesus and said, Jesus, the one whom you love, we don't even have to use his name. The one whom you love is sick. And they were, of course, so concerned that they sent for him. What did Jesus do as a response? He waited two days and didn't come. In fact, I want to point you to the verse again. We've seen it every week that we've been covering this story. I want you to see it again. It's that shocking. John chapter 11, verses 5 and 6. Pay attention to the word so in this passage. Now, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. He loved all of them. So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. And this is meant to be mind-blowing. It's meant to shock us. And so I don't want us to lose it. I don't want us to lose what John is calling us to see. The word so. He loved them, so he stayed. 
He did not come when they called him to come. And here's the point that we're able to make from those verses. That's going to be really distracting. I don't know what to do about it. So let's just pray that God, you know, stops that from happening because I can't even get up there right now to do it. Let's just call it out and let's just go on. The show must go on. It was an act of love not to heal Lazarus. That's the point. That's the point those verses are making. That's the point this whole story was making. When we see that Jesus delays, it's because it was an act of love not to heal Lazarus. And that leaves us just going, what? How is that true? And when Jesus comes to Bethany, the the village, he has now three different conversations with people who are very disappointed in him. Very disappointed. They know his power and they know to some extent that he chose not to use his power. All three of these either people or groups knew Jesus's power and they knew that he had chosen not to use it. That's disappointing. That's painful. Here are the three conversations again, just so we understand where where we're going. Jesus has a conversation with Martha first. That was last week, by the way, John 11, 20 to 27. And then also last week, Jesus has a conversation with Mary, John 11, 28 to 35. Then he's going to, what we're going to cover today, have a conversation with the Jews. That's what John calls them, the Jews. That's the group of of Jewish people that have come from Jerusalem to watch. So so he's going to have these three conversations. We've talked about Martha and Mary last week. This week we're covering the Jews, and then we're going to see the actual resurrection and watch or they're, they're raising him from the dead and watch what the aftermath is going to be. That's where we're going today. So finish that conversation with the Jews. Talk about the raising of Lazarus and talk about the aftermath of the raising of Lazarus and what happens as a result of that raising. So that's where we're going. Now let's remember a couple of things from last week. And I'm going to turn you guys to the sermon. If you haven't seen it, you guys can watch that after. What happened with Martha and Jesus? What happened there? Let's, 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 let's recap this for a second. Jesus has a conversation with Martha, and what does she say to him? Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then there's a but. There's a but. But I know certain things about you. I know who you are. I know that you have the power and I know that my brother is going to raise on the last day. So I haven't lost all hope. I haven't, what did we say? I haven't grieved as Paul says later on, like one who has no hope. I'm grieving like one who does have hope, but I'm still disappointed. I'm still hurt, but I have not lost my trust in you through that hurt. And we talked about the fact that that is a certain kind of grieving for a Christian, right? There are times where we don't understand. There are times where we don't get what Jesus is doing. And yet we put that but in at the end of our disappointment with Jesus. And we say, but I know your power. I know who you are. I know, in this case, I know you're the Messiah. And I know my brother is going to rise again. There's hope underneath the pain. That was Martha. What about Mary? 
We talked about the fact that there are clues all over the text that Mary's not having the same faith underneath the disappointment and the pain, is she? There's all kinds of clues, and I won't rehash all of them, but I'm just going to state the summary here. Mary was so hurt, she was blinded to who Jesus was at that moment. Now, do I believe that Mary did ultimately, as a whole of her life, put her trust in Christ? Would I say Mary is a Christian? Yes, I would. Yes, I would. And and how do I know that? Both what happens before with Mary sitting at Jesus' feet in devotion to Jesus while Martha's up cooking and doing all the work. And Jesus says that was better, what Mary did there. He commends her for that. Not only that, friends, but, but there's another story. And it happens right after this in the next chapter where Mary, Mary, who we had just, we spent last week kind of, we were down on Mary last week. She, she's, in, she's in trouble, right, with what happened. What does she do? Next chapter. She takes the most expensive thing that she owns, most likely her dowry, most likely the, the, the thing that she would have had and treasured and, and, and had until her, her, her wedding day, and she would have had it as a sort of as a um, something that she would have when she got married just 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 to support her in the midst of the marriage, the most expensive gift she owned, this, this expensive perfume, this expensive stuff. She comes to Jesus and she just dumps it out on his feet and she begins to just wash his feet with it, with her hair. Weird to everybody else watching, but Jesus sees it for what it is. It's an absolute act of love and possibly, possibly an act of repentance after what had happened in John chapter 11. So I think Mary has put her trust in the Lord. However, is it possible for a believer to be so hurt, to have so much pain going on inside of them that they lose temporarily their their view of Jesus, of who he is? That would be my guess. Do I know her and what's going on inside of her? No. But what we see from this story is that Mary doesn't put the but after the Jesus, you weren't here. She just ends the statement. You weren't here, period. That was Jesus and Mary. Now, the point we made last week is the same point we're going to make this week. Jesus's heartbreaking delay is actually a display of his love and glory to a very public audience. Now, today we're going to hit on what do we mean by public audience? Okay, so let's get into now our third conversation that Jesus is going to have. And it's not with a person per se, it's with a group of people. Okay, and it's not so much a conversation because there's not words back and forth, but it is a communication back and forth. Okay, and that's that's we're going to get at the difference there. John 11, 33 to 37, let's read it again. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in his spirit and greatly troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. 35, Jesus wept. So the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, Could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? 
So here we see a third conversation taking place. But they're not really talking to him. They're kind of talking amongst themselves. But here now is a third response to the disappointment that Jesus did not heal Lazarus. Third response, and it's coming from the Jews. Now, John has been setting this scene for a long time with the Jews. This is far more important than maybe you and I understand in this story is the fact that Jews from Jerusalem were in Bethany to watch this event take place. It's extremely important for the whole of the book of John and what he is trying to do because it's going to set up the scene for what will follow. Because if you don't know, at this point in our story, we are at the last sort of miracle that Jesus does before his final week on earth. And really that's what John goes to after this. After the the raising of Lazarus, that begins the final week that Jesus has in his earthly ministry before the cross. So we're like maybe just more than seven days away from the cross at this point. And John is setting the scene and he's explaining that the Jews from Jerusalem are there to watch what's going on. Let's see how he sets that scene. Go back and look at John eleven eight, and I want you to see what John, what, uh, what John the, the gospel writer, puts in here. He reminds us that Jesus cannot go back to Jerusalem, or that's what the disciples think, right? Here's John eleven eight. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you, and are you going there again? Okay, what's John doing there? Why, is, why are the disciples talking to Jesus and saying, you can't go back there, Jesus? John, the gospel writer, is alerting us to the fact that all of the danger is in Jerusalem. That's where the people are that want him dead. And, and, and Jesus had left Jerusalem for a time. And if you recall, he had gone all the way out to the Jordan River, all the way out to the wilderness, out where John the Baptist used to do his, his, his baptizing out there. And, and Jesus is with his disciples and the disciples feel safe there. And they say, you can't go back to Jerusalem. That's where they want to kill you. Okay, so he reminds us that there's tension in Jerusalem. All right, now... In John eleven eighteen 18 and 19, put your eyes there for a second. He goes out of his way to tell us how close Bethany is now to Jerusalem. Okay, look at John eleven eighteen 18 and 19. Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles off. And many of the Jews had come to Martha and Mary to console them concerning their brother. You always want to pay attention. When a, when a biblical writer inserts little details into the story, because there's a purpose, there's something that they're wanting to do. And what is John wanting to do here? He's wanting to remind us that Bethany's right where the danger is. Two miles away from the central point where they want to, they have already, I don't know if they've made the decision yet, but they really would like Jesus not to be alive. Let's put it that way. And, it, and that's happening in Jerusalem. So then in between the conversation that Jesus has with Martha and the one that he has with Mary, John throws in a seemingly random verse. John eleven thirty one. When the Jews who were with her in the house, consoling her, saw Mary rise quickly and go out, they followed her supposing that she was going to the tomb to weep there. Now, 
up until that point in the story, you've seen this really close, intimate moment with Jesus and Martha, where they're having a conversation back and forth. You see him then have this conversation with Mary, where the two, it's the two of them back and forth. But John seems to continue to tell us what the Jews are doing. Why, what, are, what is this group of Jews from Jerusalem? Where, what are they doing? Where are they going? And he, and he seems to, tell, to want to tell us that they got up and they were with Mary, when she goes and talks to Jesus, and eventually when Martha is there, they were all there when Jesus is doing his thing. So everybody is there to watch. So John's taking lots of time to tell us this. He's done this in multiple verses. John is setting the scene. This is a bit of a showdown. You, you remember the the, the, the okay corral and the two gunslingers, you know, that are there and it's high noon and they stand there squaring off with each other. They've, the, the Jews and Jesus, well, I would say this, the Jews have kind of been circling Jesus up to this point. They've, they've kind of kept their distance. He's, he's beat them when they've come and asked him questions. There have been direct questions they've asked up to this point. And they've kind of figured out behind the scenes, they've whispered amongst themselves, what do we do with this guy? Right? But now, and, and remember, here's another thing. Jesus's miracles up to this point have been pretty secret. Like keep things hush, hush, keep things down low. And all of a sudden now something's different. Something has changed about this miracle. They're all there. A ton of people are there to watch him in what he is going to do. Okay. Now, the Jews now bring up a third response to the failure of Jesus to get to Lazarus on time. They are a third response. Where do we see that? John eleven thirty seven. Here's what they say. But some of them said, could not he who opened the eyes of the blind man also have kept this man from dying? Do you hear the disappointment there? Do you hear the disappointment? Maybe he could have done something. But he didn't. So you got Martha and Mary who both come to him saying, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And now you've got the Jews saying, uh, couldn't he who was able, and remember they're referring to John 9, when Jesus opened the eyes of the man who was born blind. Miracle, amazing. Couldn't he, if he can do that, why can't he heal this guy that's dead? So, now the Jews are waiting for the next miracle. They've seen, they've seen John chapter nine. They've seen what's taking place there. Now they are, they were kind of looking for that encore performance. You know what I mean? Like they're looking for, come on, what's the next trick here, Jesus? What's the next thing you're going to, you're going to show me. Keep your tricks going. Now this represents a certain kind of, I'm going to put this in quotes. If you're listening to my voice, faith, this is a certain kind of faith that some people hold. Now, I hope this isn't your kind of faith, okay? What I'm about to describe, I hope this is not you because I actually don't believe it to be true saving faith at all. But it is a certain kind of belief in Jesus that some people in our day today hold. This kind of faith is dependent upon Jesus manifesting himself in a way that worldly eyes can see, okay? 
So remember, we had Martha who believed in Jesus and trusted him through her pain. We had Mary who was temporarily blinded by Jesus in her pain, but on the whole of her life did indeed put her trust in him. And then you've got this. This is a third response. And this response is, I want you to do something that my eyes can see. And as long as you do what I want you to do, I'm, I'm okay with you. I'll, I'll believe in you, again, in quotes, if you'll do those things. Now, some who hold this view, some who hold this kind of faith, they, they, they are consumed with Jesus doing something for them personally. Okay, so there's a kind of person that says, I will believe in you as long as you work miracles to make my life better. And I expect that. I expect that my life will be better because I've put my my sort of my trust in you and, and I will believe you as long as things are good and you keep my life going in a good direction. That's one kind of person who holds this faith. But there's another kind of person and they're not as obviously self-seeking. They actually want to see Jesus demonstrate himself out there in the world. They don't care if it's for them or not. You know, if you ever talk to somebody and and they say, well, I'm willing to believe, but I just, I need him to do something that demonstrates his power. I need him to do something to manifest who he is. He's, He's invisible. I can't see him with my eyes, right? Scientists can't study him right? You can't go and get a sample of, of God, you know, and put it in a, in, a, in a test tube in a lab and analyze it with a, with a microscope and say, yep, there it is. That's God. You, you can't do that. So there's a certain kind of thing that says, I'm requiring that kind of, they would call it proof, before I can believe. But if you'll do that, I'll believe. Now, they're a little different than we are, aren't they? They actually walked with Jesus. And they said, Jesus, do a trick and we'll believe. But that's the same kind of faith that that exists today that says, manifest yourself. Do something to show up and we'll believe. And if it isn't clear from this passage that the Jews have this opinion... I would argue that John has been portraying them this way throughout the entire book. There is always this group in the book of John called the Jews. And John kind of sees them all somewhat the same. Now, John's Jewish and 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 he but he when he says the word the Jews, that might even mean something a little different than all Jewish people. He means a particular group of people, I think, when he says the Jews. And they all kind of They all kind of think somewhat the same way in John's gospel. For instance, go, if you want to flip all the way back to John chapter two, verses 23 through 25, I want to show you something that happens at the beginning of John's gospel. That is the same behavior. It's the same feel of what we have now in John chapter 11. And it's still Um, I think it's his reference to the Jews. Now, John 2, 23, 25. Now, when he, Jesus, was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed, okay? Pay attention to that word. Many believed in his name when when they saw the signs that he was doing. So what have we been talking about? Do a trick, Jesus, and I'll believe in you. 
Many believed when they saw the signs that he had been doing. But look at Jesus' response here. But Jesus, on his part, did not entrust himself to them. What? Jesus, these are believers. These are, these are people that are they're wanting to trust in you. And you're not going to respond. You're not going to do anything. You're not going to, you're not going to meet them halfway. How cruel. Except that for John, this word believed doesn't necessarily mean saving faith. Not all the time. It's a certain kind of belief. It's the do a trick kind of belief. Do a trick and I'll follow you. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them because he knew all people and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. He knew the inward heart. And that's the problem here, isn't it? The problem here is that we are reliant, if we have this kind of faith, on what our eyes can physically see, what we can physically touch with our hands, what we can know about the world as it is around us. And the problem is that our hearts actually have no inward deep desire for him. Because there's a way in which the heart can love and can actually know beyond what the eyes can see. If you're a Christian, you know this is true. You love someone that you have never seen. Do you realize that? And the world looks at you, goes, you're crazy. You claim to love one that you've never seen. You claim to love somebody that walked on this earth as you claimed 2000 years ago. You're nuts. And if that's, if, if, if the only organ we have to feel and to know is what we see with our eyes, and what our brains then perceive from what we've seen with our eyes, then they're right. They're right. But if there is something deeper, and here the Bible calls it true saving faith, that knows even though my eyes can't see, and loves even though I'm not seeing, I, don't, I can't tangibly give God a hug, you know what I mean? And yet loves him, well, if that's true, then that's exactly the way we know God. And that's exactly what it is that's, that's inside us. There's something deeper. And, and, and the hardest thing is for those who are caught in this world and in this world's way of thinking with, 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 with saying, well, it's only the material world that exists around me, what I can touch with my hands and the atoms and the, the energy that's existing in the universe. And that's all I can deal with. That's all I can handle well, they're caught in a world system that says that's all there is. And the Jews didn't have exactly that same worldview, but they're, they're manifesting something very, very similar. If we can see it, we'll trust it. But saving faith is so much deeper. And it is something where God says, I am glorified by the fact that you don't see me and yet you believe. And we know that this is temporary, right, Christian? We know that there is a point where we will see him face to face. 
Paul says right now we see like a mirror dimly lit. We, 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 get, we get sense. We get a sense. We have the Holy Spirit living in us. We have a, we have, we have a lot of, uh, we have a lot of truth that comes through that. We have a lot of truth that comes from God's word, but these are still, this is like a mirror dimly lit, Paul says. Very dim mirror compared to what we will see when we see him face to face. But we put our faith in the fact that we will. So Jesus doesn't entrust himself to those who have to see in order to believe. Isn't that interesting? So the Jews believed in him. They wanted to see the signs that he was doing. They wanted to see the parlor magician do his next trick. And this is exactly the same thing that's going on here with the Jews in John chapter 11. Wondering why he couldn't perform another trick for them. Why can't you do it, Jesus? But now Jesus is going to do the opposite of what he's done so often in the past. Normally they get nothing. And this, this is mind-blowing. Normally you get nothing if that's your kind of faith. But now, in a total reversal of what Jesus has done in the past, Jesus is now going to give them something massive. Do I understand that? Do I understand exactly the intricate workings of the plan of Jesus Christ when he's on these three years of ministry on this earth? No, I don't. I don't know why now at this particular point, Jesus decides to flip the script and now give them in a sense what they're wanting. I have some clues, but I don't know it all. I don't, I definitely don't understand it fully. So what do we see? Let's look at John chapter 11. Let's look at verses 38 and 39. Then Jesus deeply moved again, came to the tomb. It was a cave and a stone lay against it. And Jesus said, take away the stone. And I explained this last week, but I stand with a reasonably large group of Bible scholars that say deeply moved, not the best translation there. That there's anger coming from Jesus. There's a stern fatherly rebuke coming from Jesus. Mary experienced it last week. This word was used again towards, towards Mary is what Jesus felt. And now he's going to feel it towards the Jews. Stern anger. You're not believing. You're not trusting in me. And we talked about the fact that right alongside with the stern anger is Jesus weeping over the sorrow. Jesus experiencing both right there at the same time. Now, Jesus is now, we're setting the scene, right? We're seeing now that Jesus is going to, to um, he's going to say, roll away the stone. Now, that is going to cause some consternation, okay? That's going to cause some pain. Roll away the stone so I can see my brother, his corpse, that has been decomposing now for four days. Yeah, that's going to cause some pain. Jesus said, take away the stone. 
And Martha is saying what everybody else in this story is already feeling. Martha, the sister of the dead man, John 11, 39, 40. Martha, the sister of the dead man said to him, Lord, by this time there will be an odor. New, the King James says, by this time he stinketh. <laughs> by this time there will be an odor for he has been dead four days. Jesus said to her, did I not tell you that if you believed, you would see the glory of God? Death is an ugly thing, isn't it? There's a reason why horror movies, by the way, if some of you, if you watch horror movies and you like that kind of thing, you're sick, but okay. There's a reason why horror movies way more often than not are going to, de to depict the dead. Why is the dead the thing of horror movies? Yes, there are other kinds of horror movies, but very often it's the dead. It's, it's I'm going to be grotesque for a minute here, but it's corpses. Why? You ever thought about that? Why are horror movies usually obsessed with dead things? Because there is this deep thing inside of us that fears and loathes and sees as utterly grotesque a dead body. A human body decomposing is the stuff of horror movies. And that's for a reason. We are naturally afraid of such things. In other words, Part of the DNA that God encoded us with is to go, ugh, when we see a dead body. I experienced quite a few dead bodies in my previous job as a police officer, and they're, they're never an enjoyable experience. It doesn't matter if the person died in their sleep. They're, they're not enjoyable. That's, that's not something that I, any person looks at and goes, that's beautiful, unless you're you got something wrong in, in your head. Why is that the case? Well, I would argue it's what I've, we've, been, we've been talking about throughout as we've been talking about death and grieving. It was never supposed to be. Death is, a, death is an aberration on the way this world was supposed to be. Now, some of you came to me after that sermon when I said death is not supposed to be this way with a question. And I want to I take a second to answer it now. You said, well, wait a minute. I thought there was a plan of God and this plan of God cannot be thwarted. So what do you mean it wasn't supposed to be that there was death? And that's a fantastic question. It's a very deep question. I just want to take a second. I'm going to probably Im not answer it fully, but I do want to make sure I explain what I mean when I say that. God has a plan for this world. We call it God's secret will, where he knows everything that's going to happen in this world. He is sovereign over all things. Guess what? God saw the cross before Adam and Eve sinned. In other words, he knew the response and the plan that he was going to work before there was ever a problem in the first place. We know that from scripture, that Jesus and the father actually had a conversation some kind of conversation. I don't know what you call that when the Godhead is conversing amongst themselves, but they had, well, let's call it a conversation 
where, where Jesus would go to the cross according to a plan of God that had been put forth from the foundation of the world. When I say that death was not supposed to be, what I mean is simply this. When God created Adam and Eve, he created them not to die. And he told them, here's a tree, don't eat of it, lest you die. Okay? Now, we're not into alternate universes here of, well, what if they, they hadn't? I don't know. But I know what they did. And I know that God knew. And God had actually acted already in response to what they did. And yet, there was a, there was a plan where God said, I'm going to create you. You're not going to die. And yet, because of sin, they did. And that's the grotesqueness of death. That's why it's grotesque to us. It isn't supposed to be. So that's a little tough there to talk about the different wills of God. But let's get back to our text here. Martha does not want to see her brother this way. This is not the last memory that Martha wants but Jesus is going to demonstrate something right now about who he truly is. Here's what he says, John 11, 41 to 43. Here's what he does. So they took away the stone and Jesus lifted up his eyes and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this on account of the people standing around that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said these things, he cried out with a loud voice, Lazarus, Come out. Now, his prayer is really interesting here. And I want to pick out just two things out of his prayer that we see. First, do you notice that when Jesus prays to his father, he talks about the raising of Lazarus as if it has already been done. Do you see that there? I thank you that you have heard me. And that's the same in the Greek as it is, is in English. You've already heard me. What does that mean? If it's in the past tense, what does that mean? It means that Jesus has already asked to raise Lazarus from the dead. Is it possible that in his human humanity, Jesus hears for the first time that Lazarus is sick, talks to his father says, would you allow me to raise Lazarus from the dead? F the father granting that. And then Jesus saying, okay, I'm going to, I'm going to now wait two days. In other words, the plan, I just want to remind you of this. The plan was in place long ago when Jesus waited two days and disappointed everybody. It was already there. It was already something that he and the father had discussed. I thank you that you have heard me. I've already prayed. I've already asked you. You've already granted that this is going to happen. This is a foregone conclusion. I think that's fascinating. That little tiny glimpse we get just in the past tense of that request. I thank you that you have heard me. Second in the prayer. Jesus is telegraphing. It's, it's what I call telegraphing what he's doing here, isn't he? <laughs> he doesn't need to do this when he's talking to his father, right? Jesus doesn't even need to pray out loud when he's talking to his father. 
right? But look at what he does. Let's just look. Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me. Is this how Jesus normally prays when he's in private with his father? I, I can almost guarantee you know. What's he doing here? He's telegraphing what he's doing. He's making sure everybody hears exactly what is going on here. Why? What does he want more than anything else? He wants to connect this miracle to his relationship with the father for everyone watching. So when they see this miracle take place, do you remember that some of the Pharisees, what have they been saying about Jesus? Oh, he does these, he does these things by the power of Satan. That's what they had said at one point. And here Jesus is in prayer, very obviously going to prayer to his father out loud saying, I thank you, father, that this thing that I'm about to do is from you. It's something you are doing and he's connecting it now to his relationship with the father because according to John, this raising of Lazarus, it's something that John calls a sign. It's meant to point to Jesus. It's meant to point to his relationship with the father and to say, yes, he really is who he says he is. In fact, this is the greatest sign in the gospel of John. This is the last and final and greatest sign that Jesus is going to actually perform. And it's the raising of a man back to life. Now, we know what happens, right? We know the rest of the story. Lazarus comes out of the, out of the grave, right? They, they take off the, the grave clothes. And, and, and instead of talking about that, the particulars of that particular instance, we know that Jesus' uh, prayer was answered. He was able to do this miracle. I want to talk about, for just the last few moments, I want to talk about the, the aftermath of this event. What took place because this resurrection, this raising of the dead happened? Skip with me ahead to John 12, 17 through 19. And I just want to point out a couple things and then we'll be done. John 12, 17 through 19. We're now into the last, we're now at the point where Jesus does what we call the triumphal entry. Okay. So if you're new to Christianity or if you're new to Easter and all the stuff that's going on there, uh, we celebrate a Sunday before Easter called Palm Sunday. And on Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating is the week before Jesus died, Jesus enters into, he, he comes down the Mount of Olives, across the Kidron Valley, up into the Eastern gate of the temple, riding on a donkey. And it's this crazy scene, right? And there's people worshiping him and waving palm branches. And we call it Palm Sunday because of that particular uh, event. And we celebrate that event. Now that's where we are right now in John 12. Okay. That's for context. Look at what it says. The crowd that had been with him when he called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead, continued to bear witness. What are they doing? What happened? Because of the uh, raising Lazarus from the dead, they all saw it. And then what did they do? They started telling everybody about it. So the word spread like crazy that Jesus had raised somebody from the dead. In verse 18, the reason why the crowd went to meet him was that they heard he had done this sign. So here are now people coming to meet Jesus as he comes to the temple 
as in his official first coming as their Messiah, worshiping him as he comes. Why? Because they heard that he had raised somebody from the dead. But look at verse 19. So because the crowd had come out to him, the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you are gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. And John then goes on to explain that the Pharisees decide once and for all to kill Jesus because of this particular moment. They've decided it's settled. Whatever questions they had in their mind about killing Jesus are now out and they now know what they need to do because of this event, which happened because of the raising of Lazarus. Now, why am I bringing you through all of that? The Jews that witnessed Lazarus being raised from the dead went and shared it with others. And now the word is spreading like crazy. And as a result, the Pharisees decide it is now finally time to put Jesus to death. Here's the point. The decision to kill Jesus was made as a direct result of Jesus's raising Lazarus. I just want us to think about that for a minute. The decision to kill Jesus was made as a direct result of Jesus's raising of Lazarus and Jesus knew it. Remember the disciples, don't go there, Jesus. Don't go back. Don't go back to Jerusalem. They're going to kill you there. And he says, it's time to go. We're going. He knew that if he performed a public miracle like this, it would not lead to the Jews as a whole believing in him. Nope. It would rather lead to their desire to kill him. He knew that. Remember John chapter two, he knew what's in a man. He knows the hearts of these, of these people, but he did it anyways. In a way, you could say that the cost of Lazarus's coming back to life was Jesus' life. Do you see that? Bringing Lazarus back to life and, and, and declaring that as a public miracle. Ultimately, we could say in human terms, ended Jesus' life. And in that way, Lazarus is a picture of you and I if you put your trust in him. You were brought from death to life when you put your trust in Christ. And you might ask yourself, how did this happen? How can, how can it be that I should gain God's favor when I was dead? When I was in my sins, when I was walking after, following, as Ephesians chapter two says, the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, following Satan. That was you and that was me before you came to Christ. And in the same way, the direct result of Lazarus's raising would be Jesus's death. I would argue that the direct result of your raising to eternal life, how did that happen? How were you able to be raised to eternal life? How was I? It was the death of Jesus. See, the raising of Lazarus cost Jesus his life. And the raising of you, did the same. It cost Jesus his life. If you're joining us this morning and you've not put your trust in Christ, hear this. There is only one way to God. 
Your sin has separated you from God and created a sort of death. Now you might be confused about that, but here's what the Bible says about you. You are a walking dead man or dead woman. That's what the Bible says about all who have not put their trust in Christ. Why are we dead? Because of sin. Jesus offers to give you life, but it will cost Jesus's life to give you life. And that's what he offers to every single person on the face of this planet. He offers his life to you that if you would come to him by faith, his life is gone, forfeit, in the grave, three days, so that you could be raised to new life. Now, here's what's amazing about this story. The story does not end with Jesus in the grave. We're about to celebrate it next month, by the way. He raises from the dead three days later. Why? Death can't hold him. We've talked about this before. Death cannot hold him. He rose again victorious over death, and he lives to this day at the right hand of the Father in heaven. What's he doing? What's he doing at the right hand of the Father? He's praying for you and I. He's interceding with God, talking with God about you and I, believers. Become his this morning, friend. Lay your sins onto him and let him be the sacrifice that will bring you to God. And that's where we'll end. And that's where we'll end our story uh, of Lazarus this morning. That Lazarus gained his life because Jesus lost his. And it's the same for you. And it's the same for me. Let's pray. Father, we ask now that you would fill us with a, a desire to know you, especially for those that are maybe hearing my voice right now who have not put their trust in you. God, we want to believe not because we've seen miracles. We want to believe not because of what our eyes can see, but we want to believe with something deeper, with our hearts, with, our, with the part of us that has this deep-seated faith. Lord, we want to be maybe like Martha, who can say, I am in pain right now, but I'm trusting in you fully. And, and Lord, we want to trust you and to know and to, and to remind ourselves that it was you who paid the ultimate price that we could be raised from the dead. And indeed we have been, it's mysterious. And indeed we will be. And the Bible says both. So God, we, we don't understand it fully, but we love the fact that we can walk in newness of life because of what you did on that cross and the subsequent resurrection that took place three days later. We love you. We praise you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.